Irregular People is fresh and new, just a little baby, still crawling around half naked, uh, which you can't see, which is probably good. Anyway, we don't have sponsors yet because, you know, babies. But I'd like to just tell you about the things that I think are great anyway, even though the people behind those things are certainly not paying me to do so. Why? Because I want to. And because, like everyone, I think the things that I like are cool and that you should like them too, you know? Someday, maybe someone will pay us to tell you what we like. For now, I'm going to do it for free. So here you go. The Thuma Bed. T-H-U-M-A. My wife and I needed a new bed because we had an old cheap one that had been broken several times and I screwed together with construction screws and it was awful. Anyway, this bed, the Thuma bed, is fantastic. It's super solid, really nice wood, Japanese joinery, which means like no screws. Um, It fits together really nicely. I put it together myself in 15 minutes, I think, maybe 20. Also, it's really quiet, like silent. It's incredible. I have no reason to lie to you. I will get nothing out of you buying a Thuma bed besides the satisfaction of a recommendation taken. So if you need a new bed, check it out. Thuma.co. T-H-U-M-A dot C-O. It's awesome. But you have to realize, yes, we are Americans. Black people are Americans. But this flag means something completely different to us because freedom is something that we we just got like and we don't even have that completely this is a regular people in today's episode i speak with john roman saint john a hospitality professional in his early 30s living and working in chicago john and i met while both of us were working in bars and restaurants around chicago we've always gotten along and, and we consider ourselves friends or at least friendly colleagues But it's amazing how comfortable you can be around someone without really knowing much about them at all. It's almost like some distant cousin to our ability to hate someone we know nothing about as well, you know? So at some point during the spring-summer of COVID 2020, John and I were texting, checking in, and he mentioned that his relationship had ended in a truly awful way. And he told me a little about his harrowing experience getting back home from Erie, Pennsylvania after the breakup. So I asked him to come onto the show and tell that story here with us. And one thing that John said to me that kept ringing in my head was, quote, loving a black person doesn't mean fighting for their rights. And John found that out firsthand. We've all gone through a lot over the past six months, and some of it has been the same, but a lot of us have had very different experiences. And I really appreciate John coming on and, and talking about his. When he joined me, I started by asking him about his childhood in Chicago. John Roman St. John, welcome to Irregular People. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Just from the a little bit of what you've told me, you grew up in Chicago on the south side, right? Yeah, I was uh, born on the south side and uh, is a project complex that is no longer existence right now. Um, it's called Stateway Gardens. It's directly across the Dan Ryan Expressway from Comiskey Park. Um, probably some of the best memories I've ever had was I'd be in like, you know, taking a bath, you know, and uh, the White Sox would hit a home run. So we would run to the porch to see the fireworks <laughs> because we couldn't afford to go to Navy Pier to see fireworks, you know, so only time we could see fireworks was when the White Sox had a home run. So that was super exciting. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, from there, my mom married her um, now ex-husband and we moved up to the north side. Um, and yeah, so I, 
made a big jump culturally and economically for the most part, going from the projects to a really nice Rogers Park home. Mm. When, when was that in your life? How old were you? When I was in second or third grade. So I don't know how old that is, but mm. se- second or third grade was when I moved. Chicago, for those of you who aren't familiar, is one of the most segregated cities in America and has been for a very long time. Moving from the south side to the north side, depending on the neighborhood, can be an enormous change. According to Chicago Agent Magazine, in 1980, 22 south side neighborhoods were comprised of at least 70% black residents, 17 neighborhoods, 90%. The north side was mostly white, and not too much has changed. So what was the move like for you? Um, it was cool. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that it happened uh, at such a young age. I think it would have been harder. Adults are so, uh, people who are older have so much more complexity and it's kind of ignorant complexity. Um, so for me being this little black kid going into a white and Hispanic school, I didn't really care about color. The kids didn't really care about color. We just wanted to hang out. Right. So I'm really happy that my mom moved me to the north side at such a young age because it would have been different in sixth or seventh grade when we learn about cultures and accents and why do you why are you so dark why are you so light and the ignorance of our parents or just people around us kind of absorb into us and shoot out at school so very happy for that yeah yeah it is it's always amazing how you know that stuff is not innate it's learned and when you're when we're all kids we're just all kids and we want to hang out with other kids yeah we just want to have a good time it's kind of like when you go to a bar you kind of it, nothing really matters even you know i'd be at a bar and personal space that matters one knocking to me oh i'm so sorry typically you get upset but it's like oh it's all good you start a conversation and you realize you're probably the most different people mm. in the world but now we're here and now we're talking and nothing really matters it's just we're having a good time Right. Yeah. And that's, it's just so easy for us to be, for all of us to be so separated. And, uh, you can't know something truly without experiencing it. Absolutely. And so, you know, if you never meet, if you never meet someone different than you, I don't know, it's all, it's a mess. It's a mess. And also, I mean, I think people need to, we have such strong opinions about things that we don't know. And mm. most of us don't know anything about anything, but right. we have these opinions and it's just really frustrating to have, especially with like the, the racial climate, the political climate, people have all these opinions, but they don't have any research to back it up. They they've never even tried to have sympathy or empathy with the people that they have these strong opinions toward. And it's just in everyday life as well, you know, music. Oh, I hate this band. I hate that. Like, have mm. you ever listened? No, I haven't which I'm guilty of as well, but we just, (laughs) we have all this, this angst and this anger and all these opinions about how the other side is wrong, but we don't even know what the other side really feels or how close we are in our feelings or our opinions. Right. Yeah. I mean, in in the end, you know, I, I, I think we, we all want the same things. Yeah. Most of us do. Most of us. Yeah. I mean, there's (laughs) good points. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's two tree people who just may be off the rails. Yeah, exactly. So you were in Rogers Park, second and third grade, and you stayed in Rogers Park all throughout your schooling? 
Yeah, so we stayed, I stayed in Rogers Park up until freshman year of college when I moved to Mequon, Wisconsin to go to uh, Concordia University in Wisconsin. Um, my parents still stayed there. Uh, and then up until they divorced, which my mom moved to Lincoln Square, which mm-hmm. is a nice neighborhood. But, but yeah, we spent most of my childhood was in Rogers Park, which is a really cool experience. Uh, I lived in Rogers Park, but I went to high school in Portage Park, which is a very, very far uh, commute for a high schooler every single day to travel an hour to and from school every day was a, a lot. But yeah. Why that school and why why was it worth the travel or, or was that your choice at all? I had no choice. Um, the church we went to, they uh, everyone said that they, my mom should send me to Luther North High School. It's a Lutheran school. Hmm. It's small. The test scores are great. All this. Um, so I didn't have a choice. I would have preferred to go to a public school because I went to a public school um, all through grade school and it was diverse and mixed and there's black kids, Muslim kids, Mexicans, all the in-betweens. It was just cool. And that's like my environment that I enjoyed. Hmm. Um, but I didn't have a choice. So they sent me to Portage Park to go to Luther North, which was uh, still great. I mean, I have lifelong friends from that school. So uh, it was a good decision, but I just didn't have the choice in that. Wow. Did you grow up? Uh, I mean, did you go to church a lot? We didn't go to church when we lived on the south side. Not that I remember. Um, When we moved up north, we did find uh, a really cool Baptist church. um, It's called Irving Park Baptist Church in Old Irving, which is not too far from Porter's Park. Um, It was really awesome because, you know, me and my mom were the only black people in the congregation. And we were also the youngest. Uh, Everyone was old, old. They'd been in that church for decades. Um, But right when we got there, uh, they had a black woman as the pastor of this church. Wow. And she was probably in her 40s or 50s, had a partner, lived in the parsonage. It was awesome. Um, So I've been really, really blessed with being in the right situations at the right time. I feel like I moved from the South Side at the right time. I went to this church at the right time. I went to this school at the right time. I've been just really blessed with being in the right situation as far as, you know, diversity comes. When do you think of, you know, old black churches you don't you know it's the anti-gay and you know i've been delivered and all that but we walked in there and this you know lesbian gay lady was up there and preaching and every no one had a problem with it and i was really wow. astounded you know these 70 and 80 year old white women were just up there <laughs> and they were totally fine and it just blew my mind because you know i mean i hate to say it but when i think of a 78 year old white woman i'm pretty sure she's not a fan of mine you know <laughs> so something that struck me during our conversation was this push and pull of hope and fear the coexistence of these two forces constantly at war with each other in john in our nation in the human spirit throughout the talk john mentions a lot about hardship some of which we get into some of which we don't but he also mentions how blessed he's been And to me, it seems like John is blessed with the ability to ride this line between anger and sadness over harsh reality and this gratitude for the glimpses of beauty and love that some people still exhibit. I just see someone who is openly gay and a woman of God, you know, a woman of the faith, and they all just loved it. It was awesome. That's incredible. I would not expect that 
Yeah, me neither. We, me and my mom thought that we would have to leave that church because of some of the racial things that would happen hmm. or the anti-gay things that would happen when she came, but they were welcoming. They helped her move in the parsonage with her partner. They're just the best. Wow. That's incredible. And you're gay. I am. Yes. Gay and proud. Gay and proud. Gay AF. And when, um, since we're talking about your childhood, when, when did you come out? Um, I, it's kind of complex. I came out to different people at different stages. I came sure. out to my aunt when I was like 10, I think. Wow. And I don't think it was more of a coming out. I think my aunt knows my aunt is trans. Um, and I consider my aunt to be my soulmate and she the same for me. Like we're just best friends. We're the same person, just different stages in our lives. But, um, she knew something. So then she would educate me on things and like, let me know that, Hey, being different is okay. You know, whatever you're different is, it's okay. So she knew. So that was kind of a coming out thing. Uh, high school, I came out freshman year of high school, you know, uh, one of the only four black kids in the school and a Lutheran school. And, you know, you have my gay ass walking around, you know, checking out the football players, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) some of them secretly checking you out too. They just didn't admit it. I mean, listen, I'm not here to spill all the tea, but (laughs) I had a good time in high school. Good. Um, (laughs) and then I actually came out to my mom or I was like thrown out to my mom when I was 22, uh, a cousin of mine who I don't even know to this day, found me on Facebook and he, uh, it was a picture on the profile picture was me and my then boyfriend. And he screenshotted it, sent it to my mom. And he's like, what's going on? John's gay. And wow. she called me while I was at work. I worked at silver cloud. I was a GM there. And uh, she was like, Hey, what's going on with this? And I had to go to the alley in the middle of a shift and like have a breakdown and come out to my mom, which was devastating. Yeah. I mean, it w- obviously you'd rather, uh, be the one to decide when you're going to talk to your mom about it. Yeah, I feel like it should be sort of my choice, not someone who I don't even know their last name, but you know. It seems like based on just what I know about you now, it seems like you have a really close relationship to your mother. Is that true? It is true. Um, we have had some ups and downs for sure. I think um, <clears throat> a big part of that is our age. Um, yes, she's my mom, but we're only 19 years apart. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, I have friends that are older than my mom. So my best friends are older than my mom. And, uh, so it's just kind of a weird dynamic on figuring out, you know, now I'm not a child, I'm an adult and we're not on the same level ever because I always have the fear of God, my mom, but <laughs> how to interact with each other and how to respect each other in a way that we're adults. Um, and we, finally found our ground after my latest relationship having to put my foot down and she didn't agree with, you know, the whole gay thing. And she didn't agree with me dating a white man and all that. And, uh, I told her like, Hey, my boyfriend's coming over for Christmas. She had an issue and she, you know, quoted the Bible and this and that. So I had to let her know that I am adult now. And me and this guy is probably going to get married. So you know what that means. I have to leave my mom in the Bible. I leave my mom and I go with my partner. So I'm an adult. You accept me as a whole with my partner or you don't. And that was the breaking point. And we realized like, holy shit, you're a grown ass man who doesn't quote unquote need me in a mothering way. You need me to be a part of just a part of your life. So we've, yeah. we've, we've gotten there. When was that? 
Ooh, that was last year. Yeah, about last Christmas or Thanksgiving, I think it was. So pretty recently. Pretty recently. So then Mm -hmm. um, after your cousin called your mother when you were 22, you said. So how was the time in between then and and last year with your relationship? It's been, you know, I have two separate lives for Mm -hmm. the most part. Well, I had two separate lives. You know, I dated people for years. I dated men for years and my mom wouldn't know about it or I would tell her about it, but I couldn't, I didn't have any expectation of her being interested in anyone that I was dating because I knew that she didn't agree with it. Mm. So I had my life with my mom and I, you know, I dated a guy for three, four years and uh, we never spoke about him. She knew he existed, but she just wasn't interested. Um, Now it's a lot different. She's interested in who I'm dating and what I'm doing and, you know, who I'm with or whatever. Um, but it was a very, very eerie time in our relationship because I never thought that we would make it to this point that I could invite a boyfriend over or he can sleep at her house or she would text him Mm. and they would have their own connection. And now she, it's like a full fledged family now. And I like it, but it took some time and a lot of effort, a lot of tears, a lot of fights. Um, but, um, we got here 32 years later. Oh, good. And you know, you've still got a lot of a lot of life left, so better 32 than on somebody's deathbed. Absolutely. Which I know, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just assuming that uh, that happens to some people. Some people never reconcile with their parents yeah. in that regard. So, And it's, it's sad. I never thought, you know, I never thought that I would have a really close relationship with my mom because my childhood was difficult to say the least, but we never were really close. So I just, it's like, ah, you know, this is not going to happen. I'm going to have to find, you know, my friends are my chosen family. So I'll just have to find someone who will fill that role. But I'm really glad that she was able to get there. And we were both able to understand each other and be a good son and a good mom to each other. Yeah, that's amazing. What about your trans aunt? Are you still um, close with her? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk, we probably talk once a week, but we'll be on the phone for it at least three hours. Um, We are literally the same person. She's in Chicago. Yeah. She lives in uh, near uptown. So she's not terribly far from me and Logan, but we don't get to see each other a lot because I work. She works. She does a lot of work for a nonprofit for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, And our schedules just don't work out. I'm a night owl. She needs to go to bed at a certain time. She can wake up early, Hmm. but we, we have our key keys on the phone for several hours. Oh, that's lucky too. It's really lucky. Yeah, man. I'm telling you, I've been through some shit in my life, but I've always had something there or someone there, like my aunt or Danielle or Elena or just people. I've always had a great family. I don't know any of my biological family. That's my choice. But I've I've, I've had the best luck with finding family outside of blood. And they've been the ones who have been there for me the most. So... Just really, really lucky. I think there's two ways you can take a shitty childhood. You can, you know, just keep saying that it's shitty and you live in that and you rot in that. Or you can find better ways, you know, to express yourself and find the good in it. And I've also, I'm honestly, my shitty childhood's worth what I got now. I have great people in my life. Mm. 
John mentions his shitty childhood to me a few times during our talk, but he just never really focused on it. And I think that's emblematic of who he is and wants to be. It's been making me think about the many possible definitions of survival. But I asked John if he was willing to talk a little more about why he no longer had a relationship with the rest of his biological family. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so, my, you know, being born on the South side and having an all black family, I think people underestimate how conservative the black people are. Hmm. We are very anti-gay for the most part. And it's not a blanket statement. We're not all that because I'm a black man. I'm not obviously, but um, it is very, it's not a really welcoming uh, scenario for people who consider themselves other, who don't consider themselves a cis uh, straight male or cis uh, straight woman, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's not really welcoming. Um, so that's always been weird. I've never felt a connection with any of my biological family other than my aunt. And that's obviously we understand why now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, they were always, they were never really supportive. They were never supportive of my mom who was 19 years old and pregnant and had custody at the same time of my aunt. Mm. Um, they were never supportive. They never, they never really gave a shit about my mom and that, you know, if you don't care about my mom, you don't care about me. Right. Um, also when my mom moved from the South side up to the North side, they, they claimed that, you know, I was being whitewashed because I had white friends and hmm. I buttoned up my polo all the way to the top, which I still do. Um, I talk funny. I have a white voice. I'm dating white people. Um, and all that. And, I didn't want to be tied to that because I've never been tied to them before. So I wanted to just start my own thing, my own family, my own legacy and leave them behind because they were not really progressing me in any way. Mm. Um, which triggered the whole name change thing. I, my birth name is John Lewis Williams. Mm, Uh, Yeah. John Lewis Williams, a third actually. I never knew Uh, that about you. Yeah, dude, my name has changed fucking, it changes like the weather in Chicago. <laughs> um, uh, my mom got married to one of the worst people ever, uh, James Ireland. So then he adopted me legally. So then I was John Lewis Williams Ireland, which is a whole mouthful. Wow. Um, after that divorce, which was very ugly um, for both me and my mom, I decided that it was not, it didn't make sense for me to go back to Williams because all the, those are the people who, in all actuality, hate me or, you know, they just think that I'm some clown and I'm just not worthy of acceptance into their family, even though we are family and we should be an automatic acceptance. Hmm. So I had a conversation with my mom and I was like, Hey, I know that you're divorcing your ex-husband. I don't want his last name. I also don't want my maiden name. And we had a conversation about what I should have been named or what she was going to name me. Mm. She was pressured into naming me John Lewis Williams because it's a family name. Um, we agree that John is going to be my first name because I don't even think I would remember to <laughs> change my, my first name. <laughs> um, but uh, Roman was a name that she was thrown around when she had me. Oh. And she always calls me her saint, like I'm her St. John. So then I changed the first, the first name stayed the same. My middle name dropped the Lewis, added Roman, and then my last name is St. John. And uh, that was the biggest like weight off my shoulder that I, I am not a part of this family 
that is so sick and closed minded. I'm starting my own family. And then my mom the next year changed her last name to that as well. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So we are both, we are the St. John family. And of course the Williamses don't like that because they think, Oh, we're just so fancy. It's like, no, we're just starting new. We got to break this cycle of, you know, being just stupid. You know, you want to start our own legacy and that's what we're doing. That's incredible. Your name is, it's, it's like you're on stage, you know, like clothes are a costume, hmm. you know, you're, it's just a stage name. Like, what do you want to be? And, you know, don't take it so seriously. Like I want a cool ass name. Let's just do it. Or it can be more important. Like I want to change my family. I want to create a new family, a new bond, you know, a new legacy. It's really cool. Is it a hard process to legally change your name? No, um, you, it, it, it can be. Uh, there's a way that you can do it um, where you have to, you know, post in the newspaper, I believe, for like 30 days oh, wow. as a public notice that you're changing your last name and all that. But my my mom, uh, we just went the lawyer out. You get a lawyer. They get all your information and you probably don't hear from him for like a month. And then he, you know, calls you saying, hey, show up at the courthouse at the Daily Center on this day at this time. And we showed up and they asked, hey, are you a felon? No. Are you running from debt? Or are you evading debt? No. Why do you want this last name? You explain it. If the judge agrees, they slap the gavel. You go down to like the basement level, get a new birth certificate, a new social, and that's that's it. Wow. It took maybe an hour. That's incredible. But it's mm-hmm. also interesting that the um, those rules about, especially the one about posting in the newspaper, that has to be ancient. That's so old. Like what newspaper? Oh, yeah. Well, that has to be when like, you know, because yeah, when, when people got their info about their community through the newspapers or word of mouth, it'd be like, well, we have to know because that guy owes me a hundred dollars and that guy slept, you know, slept with so-and-so and is running from blah, 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 you know? Yeah. That's incredible. It's so old school. I think now it should be like, hey, let's check your Facebook or you got to post on <laughs> Facebook and make it a status, you know? Exactly. <laughs> you got to get 100 views before we change your last name. Right. Oh, my God. John has spent his professional life in the hospitality industry in Chicago. When we were talking about that, he started telling me about managing a bar at age 22. So 22, Silver Cloud. I used to go to Silver Cloud. Are you talking about Silver Cloud in Wicker? Yeah, Damon and uh, Wabanzia. Yeah. Was that when, and you were the GM of Silver Cloud at 22? 22. I uh, was a manager over at Fox and O'Bell, which is in like River East, I guess they call that, near Navy Pier. Um, and one of my uh, mentors, professional-wise mentors, taught me so much. I came in as a busser. And then I got up to, uh, what do you call a cashier and then moved my way up to being the purchasing manager and the, the food and beverage director for both restaurants and the grocery store. He left Fox Nobel and drug me with him as his AGM to Silver Cloud. I think I was 21 at that time when he first got me there at, uh, as the AGM, wow. he found a new job right away and left. And so then I was the GM there for a couple of years. Barely able to drink, but telling these 30-year-olds what to do was pretty fun. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sure that was... <laughs> they loved me there. It was great. <laughs> are, you, are you being sarcastic? Or is that true? Yeah, very sarcastic. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, 
you've already got two targets on you for lack of a better term being black and being gay and then you're 21 and you're a gm in wicker park it was uh it was hard but i mean the good thing was it only got better from there so so you started as a bus boy at what age um when did i start at fox i think i was at fox nobel at 20 i believe my first real job was freshman year high school there's a place called uh, Don Carlos on North Avenue in Pulaski. It's all boarded up and closed down now. Um, but one of my former best friends, her dad was Carlos. Mm. And it was, you know, a banquet hall and a bar. So I would go there and we would cut up peppers. And I was serving pina coladas, um, <laughs> you know, quinceañeras and shit when I was 13 years old. Wow. And uh, Carlos would pay us 40, 50 bucks cash for all this work. And that was dope. Uh that was really a lot of fun. Very illegal, but a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but then my first legal <laughs> restaurant job was Fox Nobel. Okay. And I was uh, 20, 20, 20 probably when I got that job. From a busser at a grocery store to the GM of a neighborhood bar at 22. From there, John wanted to learn about volume in the hospitality industry. Big companies moving tons of product for a lot of people. And he ended up at Parsons, a hugely popular fried chicken place started by the successful Chicago restaurant group Landon Sea. After a tumultuous and stressful summer and a half there, he moved on to Lost Lake, a much-awarded tiki concept produced by Landon Sea and Paul McGee, one of the most celebrated bartenders and bar creators in the country. When things didn't work out there, he moved on and finally found some passion in the industry that he could get behind. I was looked over multiple times for a salaried manager position. I was just hourly. So I left that, uh, left Land and Sea altogether. And I went to open up uh, Cantina 1910 in Andersonville with Chef uh, Deanna Davila, or Davia, I think it's Davila, I don't know, um, which was really cool. That was my f- second time opening a restaurant, but this was the first time opening one from the ground up. Mm-hmm. I was hired you know, four or five months before we were even supposed to open. We did like on my birthday, um, my birthday present was us getting our liquor license the day before we opened. Um, so that, that's how stressful it was. Um, but it was fun and it was cool and it was awesome to work with chef Deanna. We both had a passion and she has a passion. I also have a passion for hospitality, for food, for tradition. Mm. Um, and just expressing culture through food, which was awesome because I didn't get that from any other place that I worked at. Most of the other places I worked at were sort of in the realm of adapting or adopting a culture or a food or a style or tradition and then putting their spin on it. Mm-hmm. But working with this young Mexican American woman with, you know, two kids, a husband, juggling all that, but still opening up one of the dopest restaurants that's ever been in Chicago was awesome. And to feel her passion and to just have conversations about, hey, this costs so much. Why does it cost so much? And she'd tell me, well, authenticity costs. And it's like, shit, that that makes so much sense. And let's figure something else out because I get it. Like, I, I feel this energy from you. That passion-fueled establishment didn't last too long in the neighborhood of Andersonville, unfortunately. And John was sad about it, but he'd been inspired to continue to work with impassioned individuals in the industry, which is how he ended up back in Wicker Park at a Saved by the Bell-inspired pop-up called Saved by the Max. Supposed to start off as like, you know, we're going to do it for a couple months, went almost a year, one day short of a year. 
And John was again inspired this time by the passion of Derek Barry, the creator of the Saved by the Max concept. He was so into it. It was just, it's not like a hobby. This was something that he just cared about. Every single detail, his heart was in it. And I, I appreciated that. I myself was not into Saved by the Bell. I wasn't able to watch TV until a later age. Hmm. Um, but to see, to relive through his eyes and his, what he wanted was great. And to help him fulfill that that dream that he had, that he is killing it now. They're in LA, coming back to Chicago soon. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, passion matters. It does, man. And uh, I feel like the passion's gone out of this industry. I personally feel. How so? When I, when I used to go to work, when I used to work at Fox Nobel as a busser, the tables had to be cleaned. Everything has to be cleaned because these are guests in our home. And, you know, you go through all this training and they, um, it, it is a mindset. Hospitality is a real thing. And no matter where you work, at Burger King, Wendy's, Schwa, you know, mm. wherever, it is a, you are serving guests. They have certain expectations. It is your job to, you know, not only to meet them there, but exceed. And it's, I think it's a personal philosophy. It's what I learned when I had my first job at 13, when I was at these quinceaneras, how special these days were. Yeah. A sweet 15 is a huge life of a young woman's life. And we are the ones here helping you get through this, helping you make these memories. When, you know, I go to, to a bar, I, it's a reason that I'm there and I could drink shitty beer at home. Right. You know, I can do all this at home. I have a full bar here but I want to go out to get out of my headspace and to go somewhere else. And I expect for them to supply me with that. That's the whole reason I'm there. Yeah. But I feel like it is not the same anymore. There's no passion. There's no passion in who you're hiring. There's no passion in actual hospitality. Like the, what the meaning of hospitality is people just show up, get the job done and they go home, which I can respect, but coming from someone who my entire life has been food and beverage and having this passion, it's just really disheartening and makes me kind of sad. Yeah. Makes me sad too. I mean, you know, I, I've spent 16, 17 years in the hospitality industry as well. And I always felt it was, it was about the moment. It was about people. It was about the experience and People can feel when you're when you actually want to make their day better in some way. Yeah, you can see it. You go to a drive thru and you can see someone who's pissed off. It's like she does not want to be here. I get it. Thanks, girl. Yeah, exactly. I get it too. I mean, <laughs> you know, all of us in the hospitality industry have taken taken a lot of abuse from the people we're trying to help. Yeah. So there's that too. I mean, I don't want to defend. Uh, you know, passionless hospitality. Um, but it can certainly drain you. It's, I mean, I, I think I'm slowly becoming one of these, well, not even becoming, I think I am one of these passionless people. You know, I just, you get worn down so much, you know, you just go through so much from so many people. It is a very tough job mentally, physically, emotionally. It's a lot. And it's kind of worn down on me to the point that, I just don't know if I have faith in the hospitality industry anymore because, and I don't even want to call it hospitality and the food and beverage, because it's not about hospitality. It's food and beverage. It's very much, here's your food, please leave. Let's make this room look as cool as possible. And let's put the least amount of effort in anything else. It's more about a cool room and not a well 
equipped kitchen, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah. more like let's make this room look really cool and let's sell a fuck ton of grilled cheese. It's yeah. like, oh, that's so great. Awesome. <laughs> and let's do Kool-Aid and vodka. Yeah. We're going to call it hospitality. Now everything's changed. You're working in the hospitality industry during a pandemic. How's that going? It's it's going, man. It's uh it's quickly become a new normal to wear the masks and all that. Um, it has changed a lot since being back uh, in working in the during the pandemic. When I first started back, guests were super appreciative and they'd tell you, hey, real quick, just so you know, thank you for doing this. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you taking the risk just for our leisure. Um, now, people are just going back to being assholes and disrespectful and treating you like a servant again. I think the new normal has set in that, yeah, I forgot that I am entitled because I'm an American and you do what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's it's different. You know, when you have hospitality, when you're in the industry, you want to talk to your guests as much as possible. You want to have these conversations. But now it's kind of taboo. We're kind of afraid of each other. You know, when I walk up to right. a table, they're all like, oh, Lord Jesus, like he's got it. He's got the plague. We'll just drop my burger here. It's totally fine. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing because I know, I mean, that there is this anxiety and fear that's rippling through, especially when you're trying to, I mean, what is it like for you approaching a table? It's, it's hard. I mean, you can't even see me smile. You don't know my mood. You know, my body language is off-putting because I'm a little off-put because I'm afraid, you know, it's, I don't know who, I don't know if you're going to be a non-masker. I don't know if you're going to give me an attitude because I asked you to put on a mask or if I asked you to do certain things. Um, it's just really nerve wracking. Um, more so mentally now. I feel like before my body was worn out now, mentally I'm exhausted. My anxiety is high. Mm. It's through the roof. And I feel it's the same way with our guests, with the customers. They're the same way. They don't know who I am and you know, they don't know, how I feel. They don't know if I'm smiling. They don't know if I'm in a good mood, a bad mood. They just see that most of my face is covered and I'm trying to get this done as quick as possible to get away from you. And that just, it sucks because, you know, already the industry before the pandemic was going on a way of we're order takers. You're an order taker. You know, you're not a bartender. You're not a whatever. You just sit there, you take my order. I leave. We're good. I leave you 18% at max and we, we did. Um, but now it's kind of, getting the pandemics caused that to be a little bit worse because I'm not really showing that much personality because I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. I don't really have much personality to give right now. That makes total sense to me. And that was part of my fear about opening. And it's like, I, you know, how can we even do this in a way that's pleasurable for anyone? And the answer is that it's not. I mean, there's some people that don't care. I've encountered people who just think it's a normal Tuesday, you know, and they're just out here, but it just, it's not, it's not fun. Bartenders are supposed to be talked to and they talk to you. It's like a barber shop. You know, you go and mm-hmm. you talk to your barber and you get shit out. You go and you talk to your favorite server, your favorite bartender, you talk, but now it's like, what do you want? Old fashioned? Boom. Don't touch it yet. Wait till I leave. And then we're good. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my God. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's really difficult. And I feel like the industry has gone through enough during this pandemic financially and all that, but now emotionally everyone's just kind of drained and we just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. It seems to me the reason to open is if you have to for survival, if you're not going to make it. 
Um, and that makes sense to me. I can totally understand that. You, you have the, you have a, you know, you started a business, you employ people, people need to work. I mean, I, if I had the choice, I would not want to be around 200 some odd people every single day for five days a week. Um, but you know, I got to work. There's no rent abatement. There's no, you know, the people who own my building, they still have to pay their mortgage. And I totally understand that. And I got to pay that rent. If not, then I don't have a home. So mm-hmm. we just have to do what you got to do, which is so sad that this is what it's come to. But uh, survival is the best word for it. You got to yeah. work because you got to survive. Yeah. Our conversation led us to John's last relationship, the end of which put John into a frightening situation, attempting to cross the country during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic and the protests and riots surrounding the death of George Floyd. John told me that he and his ex loved each other, but they had their ups and downs. Much of the relationship was good, but as time wore on, the the strains of long distance made their mark. We met through a mutual friend. He lives in Pennsylvania. I live in Chicago, obviously. Um, we did the long distance thing the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very, very much different than I, I am very out. I'm very black. I am very proud of both those things. Um, you know, I'm like a big black dude, you know, 240 something pounds, five, 10, five, 11 on a good day. He's a short dude from Pennsylvania who is not as open you know, with his sexuality as I am or open politically because I'm sure his political beliefs are not the same as mine now that I think about it. Um, John told me that during the course of their relationship, he did almost all of the traveling from Chicago to Erie, Pennsylvania, as opposed to the other way around because his boyfriend was scared of the city. But it was okay for me to take, you know, to drive my black ass through a pandemic through Illinois, through Indiana, through Ohio, through Pennsylvania, um, to go see you. But that is, that just shows you the, the value of me versus him for the most part. But it wasn't the distance between Chicago and Erie that ended their relationship. It was a different sort of distance altogether, one much harder to ignore or break down. I was in Pennsylvania pretty much living there during the quarantine. And he was very silent about Black Lives Matter. This is right when um, Aubrey had just gotten lynched in Georgia. Hmm. Um, and then a couple days after that, my ex-boyfriend's fence to his house mysteriously caught fire. Um, when, hmm. you know, my boyfriend was gone, he was on a motorcycle ride, you know, up in the Allegheny Mountains or whatever. And I was just terrified. I knew that there was a correlation. I knew that something's happening here. I knew that there's way too many Confederate flags. I mean, one is too many, but when you are walking around um, as the only black person that you've ever seen in this the, the city, this rural city in Pennsylvania, and your you know your fence gets caught on fire, and people look at you funny, and I knew something's off. Hmm. Um, but he just didn't seem to be phased by that. So I brought it up to him. I was like, "Hey, man, like your silence is kind of telling. Like, what's going on? How do you feel?" And he asked me, you know, what, what can I do to support? I was kind of an asshole. It's like, well, it's not my job to educate white people on how to not be racist, but this is what I need you to do. Here's a website. You can donate to get some of the protesters out, or you can donate to Black Lives Matter. You can donate to Ahmad's family. You can do, you know, picks up his phone, does all the clickety clack. I thought he donated. Cool. We kind of stopped talking about it. We go camping, uh, the like two days after that initial conversation about what can I do to support, 
and and I, I don't want to offend anybody, but this is my city slicker ass. I've never been camping. Yeah. My first time camping, I'm terrified at this point of white people, and I'm terrified of white people who I don't know. Mm. And I'm terrified of white people who I don't know in the woods who probably don't ever interact with people who look like me. So I'm already honored. I'm terrified. We get there. All of his friends are like, hey, yeah, you know, we're going to have to cut this trip short because we're going to go protest. And I said, like, holy shit, that's awesome. Like, here they are. They're flannel and they're red hair and fucking beards down to their bellies. You know, they, you look like the type of person I've run from, but you are actually great. It's, you know, that's a lot of prejudice on my end, you know, that just proved me wrong. Uh, my oh, my <clears throat> ex-boyfriend was very silent. We get in the car and we're going to go go-karting somewhere on the campground. And I asked him, like, hey, man, you were really quiet. Can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah, what's up? I asked him, did you donate to Black Lives Matter when you said you did? And he flat out said, no, I didn't. I didn't think it was that important, is what he said to me. Wow. I lose my shit, obviously. Um, I've done a whole lot for this individual. Um, I put myself back in the closet for this individual because he was not an out man. I had to lie to his friends. I had to lie to his parents. I had to be his buddy for a year and a half before he would even wow. utter the words I'm with John. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so this is what it's come to. Um, so at that point I say, drive me back to the campground. I want to get my shit. Me and you are completely done forever. I asked him, Hey, I'm going to catch a flight tomorrow from Cleveland. Can I stay on your couch? He told me in the middle of a pandemic after he just told a black man who has been sleeping with him and has done all this and been with him for years. No, I think you should get a hotel. So they drive the two hours from the campground to Erie, where John packs up his stuff and leaves the house. Personally, my skin tingles thinking about John in that moment. He's black, gay, and his white boyfriend just kicked him out of the house in the middle of a pandemic and an explosion of national battles about race and racial injustice. Rideshares are not prevalent in Erie, John told me, so he starts walking. I didn't want to be on his his lawn outside, this black guy with a bunch of bags in this racist-ass town, you know, after this heard yelling and screaming, the last thing I need is the cops to show up and Lord knows how that would end. So I walk around for a little bit and finally get an Uber. He calls up some friends and his mother and manages to get a little money together in it. It takes John a while to find a room at a hotel. Uh, some of them claimed it was because they were all booked up, but it was a pandemic. Not a lot of people were traveling. So John thinks based on that and other things he could sense that there were other reasons he was told no. He finally finds a room and he's alone, he's grieving, and he's scared. I lost my best friend in one day and I lost my future husband in one day. Uh, the next morning I get woken up by, there's a, a really young white lady who worked at the front desk of the hotel. Um, she knows from Chicago because they are not allowed to rent rooms from people for, that have local IDs because of prostitution and drug use and meth and all that. Hmm. And I told her, you know, I'm leaving uh, here and I'll probably never come back. I'm just going to go back home to Chicago. She knocks on the door the morning that I'm supposed to check out that I planned on renting a car to drive all the way back to Chicago. And she's like, hey, there's been some really um, controversial tweets from some police officials that's uh, 
calling in on the saying eye for an eye. If we find a nigger, we're going to kill one. And she's like, I don't think that you need to be on the road and driving through Pennsylvania and Ohio and Indiana. And this is, you know, this, they're protesting and rioting George Floyd at this point. And she's like, this is not the time for you to be driving. You need to catch a flight. And I credit that woman. Don't know who she is or what her name is. Hmm for saving my life because I would have driven and Lord knows what would have happened. You know what I mean? I can't get a flight out of that place that I was in, but the next town over is Cleveland. I go to the airport um, to get a car, just to drive to Cleveland, took a two hour drive. And uh, you know, me and my ex had the same credit card. We were on this, the credit card account together. He'd already blocked me from his credit card by that point. I explained to this lady at the airport, like, Hey, I need to leave. I'm not safe here. I don't have a place to stay. My partner just kicked me out of the house. I need to go back home. And she said, cool. It's probably not the safest, but you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a pickup truck with Virginia plates because they don't expect a black man to be in a Virginia plated pickup truck. You will look white and they won't pull you over. I'm not going to charge you the fee. Take this car. You just need to go straight to the airport. And if you can drop it off in the next two hours, you're totally fine. So this lady charged me $40 and was sure to give me a big ass, like F one fifty with these big tires and American flag and all this bullshit because she knew how dangerous it would be for me to drive through all this bullshit. So John gets to Cleveland and his good friend, Danielle had bought him a direct flight from Cleveland to Chicago. He gets home, sinks into his emotions about the relationship, the trip, the state of everything. And later he gets a Facebook message from his ex attempting to explain that he's misunderstood, that he's made social media posts proclaiming his support in the past, and, you know, that it's not what John thinks it is. You know, look at these posts. But what he forgot was, and I'm not a fucking idiot, you posted those pictures on Saturday at 9 p.m. You kicked me out of the house. I was checked into the Ramada at 7 p.m. So you posted this shit afterwards because you knew mm. that your friends are going to ask why we left camp early. Why was John crying? Why are you crying? What's going on? You knew the truth would come out. And he just posted this just to be performative. And like, look, you never gave me a chance. It's like, I gave you a chance. But you, through a black man in Erie, Pennsylvania, in the middle of a pandemic and a race war in the street because you refused to support black lives even though you've had a black life black sex black best friend for three years wow it was hard and i questioned a lot about that you know how the hell can you be with someone for this long and be best friends and all this and but you you can't utter the words you can't support black lives matter you don't agree that that's the case Mm. but you know you could i guess it's not something that I'm capable of, but you can love someone, but not agree that they're equal to you. If that's, if that makes sense, Mm. you couldn't utter the words black lives matter, but you were with me for so long. Like, how does that work? It's still, I still have that question. I wish I could ask him. Yeah. I mean, it seems like such a dissonance. It's like, if I, if I I have a trans aunt, you know, it's like, Hey, I love you so much. But trans rights, y'all asking for way too much. Like that doesn't, you know, like I can't, I can't do that. I can't have Elena is my best friend. I can't sit here and call her my best friends, but don't believe that she should have autonomy over her body or that she should fucking vote 
or that she should have the same pay as me or as any other man. Like I, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it's a weird manipulation and a, a weird supremacy that people have. If you could have that relationship with someone, but still not agree with them having equal rights. Wow. Yeah. That, that was one of the hardest things that I've had to do in my life. You know, he was the uh, first person that I've ever been fully engulfed and fully in love with and f- to have it end this way. Yeah. Oh, to have the end of your relationship in, tied up into the racial divide of the, this country and, and everything that's happening right now. I mean, so how are you processing things right now? Just, you know, where the country's headed? What are you, what are you thinking about right now? America is a scary place. It's weird to say, but I am very, I'm just honest and it may sound morbid, but I'm just waiting for it to be me next, you know, me walking down the street, you know, smoking a cigarette and always, you know, with a hoodie on. And the next thing you know, I'm, you know, whatever, you know, I think that's a fear that most black people have. Hmm. When is it going to be me? You know, I can't go three miles over the speed limit. I can't do this and that because this could end in death, but I'm very happy that it is not just black people being afraid anymore and being upset. Yeah. It is everybody. And this is what we need. You know, we need everybody to, to, to fix this because we've tried to fix this before on our own as black people and that ain't work. So now more people are getting outraged, more people are getting angry, more people realizing that the black people in their lives do matter and that we are terrified to leave the house every single day because of, anything could happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I just worry there seems to be very explicit opposite reactions as well. More, maybe more explicit than I've seen ever. And of course, you know, we have people in power that are, um, not condemning, uh, that sort of action and and stoking the fire and fanning the flames as uh, you know as you know yeah it's it's scary man we're seeing it so much more now you know it's just people are are bold and they have their reasons to be bold and they have their excuses not reasons this is excuses to be bold and to be explicitly racist and sexist and homophobic and all that it's just, it's just really frustrating to see how we've gone back so much. I, I never thought in a day in my life as an adult that I would have to relive a race war. Ugh. You know, it's like, this is some shit that my grandparents had to do and my great parents to do. Like, we're so beyond that. But I don't see an end in sight, unfortunately. And it, it is what it is. And it's just a, a really weird time to be an American in this country and try to have some kind of respect for the flag. A lot of people think that black people kneeling or not wanting to sing this song or read this poem uh, that boasted about the blood of slaves is disrespectful. But if it were the other way around, Hmm. um, or not even the other way around, when we put our fist up in the air and we say Black Lives Matter, you are so, it's so triggering. But you have to realize, yes, we are Americans. Black people are Americans. But this flag means something completely different to us than it does for you. Because freedom is something that we we just got. like, And we don't even have that completely. Hmm. So, you know, we don't pledge allegiance to a flag for a nation that 
called us property for the most part. You know what I mean? And to this yeah. day, doesn't care or treat us the same. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, just as, um, as a white kid growing up, um, in a small town in Wisconsin, um, you know, I, my experience with the police was, you know, getting caught drinking underage, but otherwise, you know, calling the cops to help. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the fear, my fear of getting pulled over or something was, was more about, uh, getting in, in trouble and, uh, paying a ticket. Yeah. As I was, you know, as a black man growing up, as a black child growing up, before I got my permit, before I even thought about getting my permit, you know, most black parents sit down with their kids and their black kids and teach them how to get pulled over and how to survive a pullover mm. and what you need to do. So that wallet should never be in your back pocket. It needs to be on the seat where they can see it. Your phone needs to be visible at all times because that is black and it looks like a weapon. They'll shoot you. Your hand's going to be up here. Your hood has to be down and all these things, you know, that you have to think about. Mm. And it's just, it's just so sad that we still have to have these conversations, you know, and it's just really troubling. And I just want it to be over, you know, and it's, I obviously a gay man, I can't have kids, but I don't see myself ever adopting or bringing a kid into this world that I'm responsible for because I can't, I can't protect you against the world. The world is on, it's a dumpster fire. The world is trash. And I just, I couldn't think of raising a child in this world, a black child in this, in this world. It's just terrifying. So how do you, um, do you, I mean, do you experience any hope whatsoever? Can you right now? Uh, I feel some hope when I'm walking down the street in Logan or when I see the Black Lives Matter signs out on businesses and in front of homes. I see some hope when I watch the news, rarely when I watch the news, because, you know, depression mm. doesn't need more flame to the fire. Mm. Um, but when I see white people or, you know, other people, non-black people on the front lines protesting for Black Lives Matter, it does give me some kind of hope. And I feel like our generation, our people, like this new quote unquote America is retired and not just blacks are tired now. Everyone's just tired. And I do have some glimpse of hope, but I mean, I'm sure Rosa Parks had that same hope. I'm sure Martin Luther King had that same hope. I'm sure Malcolm X had that same hope. It, it just depends on the day if I have hope or not. Usually not, but sometimes I have to force myself and like, hey, it can't get any worse, can it? And then I think back, it's like, oh no, it totally can. I will tell you one thing though. I was very shocked the day that I had to flee uh, Pennsylvania, they were actually protesting in Erie. Wow. Which really? blew, my, blew my mind. I mean, there is a black population there. It's very small and segregated, more so segregated than Chicago. Hmm. They were protesting there. I was like, holy, that's my mind was blessed. like, dude, this is really happening. They are protesting in Erie, Pennsylvania. That is, it's going down. Like, maybe this is a little bit of hope because everyone's just mad. And everyone and every everywhere, they're all just mad. I get it. So if uh, if you can hang on to whatever hope you have, 
in you and and bring it to the the forefront right now. What are you what are you thinking about for you next? What's what's next for you? And what would you like to be doing? I've 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 always loved theater. I've always loved acting. Um and you know, I've acted my entire life. I had to pretend to be straight. I have to pretend to not be so black so I'm not threatening to certain people. I have to pretend to be happy. I have to pretend to care about people at work. I have to pretend and act. Acting is literally my entire life. Yeah. Um, so, and I love it. You know, I love doing that. And I think that it's, you know, if you're good at something, don't do it for free. And I would love to act and do theater and also be an advocate and, you know, have a voice for kids like me who grew up in a certain way, in a, you know, a bad part of town or born in a certain way that is not universally understood maybe people who have gone through sexual abuse as I have when I was a kid and just let them know that it's going to be okay. Because I do realize like I don't have to boast about myself, but I'm doing damn fine for a kid who was, you know, gone through being molested by a family member for, you know, over 10 years, Mm. you know, being poor and black and homeless at a certain point, uh, to, to now I'm doing pretty well for myself. And I, I feel like if it weren't for my community, my people around me, um, helping me out, I wouldn't be here. And it, it feels like it's going to get worse, but I guarantee once you hit rock bottom, you'll realize that it can only get better. And I would love to express that on a platform that I would have that's bigger than, than now. And I would also love to just act. I've been acting my entire life just to survive. So I would love to do that for fun this time. I've always had this in the back of my mind of like, this is my actual passion is acting is theater. It is theatrics for the most part, but I've always been so involved in, well, I have to make money now and I'm in the food and beverage industry. So I've got to keep that going. I, I can't be an artist because artists don't make money and this and that, but you know, food and beverage professionals don't make money now either. So yeah, right. <laughs> I, it's forcing me to, to this, screw what you think you have to do and do what you want to do. You know, I'm not old, but I feel like it's just time to be happy and time to be creative. I've never had that chance to do that. I've always been in a relationship that was suffocating that didn't allow me to do it or in a relationship in a restaurant, you know, yeah. um, that didn't allow me to do that. Now, I mean, it's the world's crashing. I better let's, if I got to go out soon, let's go out and have some fun. Thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to me with me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for uh, allowing me to talk and have a voice and go on tangents about all the, the weird shit going on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I had a good time. I think it was good, man. I, I, a lot of this stuff, I I don't really have anyone, not that I have no one to listen to because I'm so desperate, but like, I don't really have anyone to ask me these questions. You know what I mean? People just assume what, <clears throat> that they know what I would answer. So they don't ask. So it's really cool to have these questions asked and to be able to give an honest answer. It's a a privilege. It's nice. It's a privilege to have you on and and that you would give me the the space to ask you too, you know? For sure. All right. Thanks, John. For sure, man. You have a good one. I'll text you. Okay. You too. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. I'm really grateful that John felt that way about our talk. Because that's the whole reason I think this show matters. I hope at Irregular People I can continue to get better myself at giving people the space to tell their story. 
or at least one of their stories. Because each of us is many stories at once. And all of our stories are one. Irregular People is a production of Once Upon a Wessler. This episode was produced, engineered, and edited by me, Calvin Marty. I also wrote and performed the theme music, and, well, it's still a one-man production out of an apartment, so... Yeah, that's that. Eventually, I'd like to get some others involved so things can move a little faster. So if you'd like to support the show, you can do so on our website, www.irregularpeople.show, via PayPal. And soon you'll be able to support through Patreon as well, gaining access to subscriber-only content. You can also subscribe to our newsletter on our website and find ways to share the podcast with family and friends. One of the best ways to support the show right now is to share it. Also on the website is more info about today's guest, about me, and about what Irregular People hopes to be and become. So check out the website, irregularpeople.show. If you'd like to contact me with questions, comments, or to leave a voicemail, you can do so by sending me an email at listen at irregularpeople.show. To leave me a voicemail, just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to the same email address, listen at irregularpeople.show. And you might just hear it on a future episode. Thank you so much for listening. Keep listening. Do you have a favorite color? Uh, my favorite color is gray. Ooh, gray. Mm-hmm. It goes with everything. You can dress it up, dress it down. It's sort of neutral. You can accessorize with anything, and it can be a major, it makes everything look like a major color when you're really not trying that hard. Wow, that's really smart. And I would never expect anyone to answer gray. I love it. Gray is, gray is the best. <laughs>